Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Principal Brown. Oh. Hi, Molly, Amy. What's shaking? I want to make the transition of next year's student government as seamless as possible so that when I'm up in New Haven... Yale. You can just say Yale. Please. Well, our classes. That's from the new book Smart with Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver as high achieving high school pals headed to the Ivy Leagues. Jason Sudeikis there as their overwhelmed principal. For the record, when I talk about where I went to college, I just say Yale. Mm, but you didn't go to Yale. Yeah, but at least I don't say New Haven. Okay. A raunchy slash sweet comedy in the super bad mold, Booksmart is the feature directing debut of actress Olivia Wilde. This week on the show, we've got a review of Booksmart plus the film spotting top five female friendship movies. It's all ahead. You up for a road trip after recording, Josh? Maybe the Grand Canyon? Uh, I don't think so. On film spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. 14 years and change of Film Spotting Top Fives. 730 episodes. Certainly, we must have done one about movie friendships, right? And yes, we have. I love that I tend to only go into the archive and look to see if we've done a list before after I've already formed my list. <laughs> Not only have we already decided on the topic, but I've formed my list. And in this case, it's not the exact list, fortunately, but way back, way back on episode 153 of Film Spotting, that was 2007, Sam Van Halgren, now producer, and I did our top five movies about friendship. We called it the Jules and Jim Memorial List. Now, you give me grief about cheating. On my top five, I had one cheat, and I have no idea how I paired together with Nail and I and E2 Mama Tom Bien, but I found a way. Okay. Sam, on the other hand, five picks, ten choices. Oh, my goodness. A tie for every slot. That's outrageous. So really, I just learned from him. I learned from watching Sam. And the thing that stuck out to me here doing this list, and it really shows just maybe how far we've come as hosts, certainly gotten a little wiser and just seen a lot more movies since episode 153 of Film Spotting. Of those 16 movies that we managed to fit into a top five. Only one of them, my number five, featured a female friendship. But I like the pick. I've 
pull them up here. I've got them. Heavenly Creatures. That's, That's it. an honorable mention for me. Me as well. On this, this show, as a matter of fact. Well, this week's top five, we're going to try to balance the scales a little bit. We're going to do our top five female friendships in the movies. That list, of course, a tie-in with Booksmart. Let's get to our review. We have to go to a party tonight. What? What took them four years? We are doing it one night! No, no, no. Not acceptable. This is not okay. Who allowed you to be this beautiful? Who allowed you to be this beautiful? Who allowed you to take my breath away? Get here, girl. Prepare to get bashed. Not in like a violent way, completely consensual bashed. Prepare to get consensually bashed. They'll say I'll have them change it. Booksmart is a bit of an odd duck, Adam, in that it's at once incredibly cliched and surprisingly fresh. Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver star as Molly and Amy, high-achieving seniors, best friends, who wonder if they should have done less studying and had more fun in school. And so the night before graduation, they decide to hit the biggest party of the year. The expected bits are here. The different high school cliques, the exasperated school administrator, here played by Jason Sudeikis, that party. We've seen variations on much of this before, from Superbad, starring Feldstein's older brother, Jonah Hill, to American Pie, to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Insert your own formative high school movie here. But then you have the fact that the two main characters are girls. Four women wrote the screenplay. The director is a woman, actress Olivia Wilde, making her feature debut. And the many queer characters are given more of a role in the narrative than usual, including Amy, played by Deaver. So, Adam, what did you make of this movie Whiplash, this conglomeration of the old and the new? Did you mind the cliches? Did you appreciate the freshness? Overall, would you say Booksmart stands out in an incredibly crowded and familiar genre? Well, before you answer that, you may have to define exactly what the genre is. Is it teen comedy? Is it high school comedy? Are those the same or is there a distinction there? Is this a teen high school sex comedy? There's lots of variations on it. We could maybe even get a little more specific. This is a geeks trying to get laid movie. Yeah, it hits all those subgenres, I would say. Yeah, it does. And undoubtedly driving the action here to my last point is the pursuit of action. It's Amy's crush. That is going to be a key part of the story. And then we learn a little bit more about Molly and one of her crushes later in the film. It's funny because I was thinking about this genre or this mashup of genres. And there's no doubt if you were just going to start listing them, it is tipped in the favor of men or teenage boys. At the same time, maybe the definitive one is Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is predominantly a female perspective, clueless, recently The Edge of Seventeen, Lady Bird. I think all of those would probably qualify. And this is being billed, rightfully so, you mentioned it, as the female super bad. And I think for me, it maybe stands out the most in the context of all of these Apatow-produced or directed comedies, which really have dominated comedy over the past decade or so. 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, yes, Superbad, Anchorman, Step Brothers. But even there, there's a few notable exceptions like Trainwreck and Bridesmaids. In terms of the stereotypes themselves, you touched on some of them. I think it's a little bit inevitable with a high school set movie. We have the tryhards here, our two lead characters. You get the drama folks, you get the cool kids, I was trying to remember, are there really any jocks in the film? 
I think the implication is that Nick is a jock, okay. the, the dreamboat vice sure. president who doesn't pull his weight yeah. in student council. Yeah, right, right. I think that's the case. Yeah, I think that's fair. There are the promiscuous girls, the rich kids. There's the lame principal, even though he's actually probably not that lame. And there's also the teacher who parties with the kids. I think about the great moment early in Say Anything when the guidance counselor, I think it is, shows up to the party and Lloyd's the key master and she drops her keys in and goes into the party. But I think I'm with you because you said it felt fresh. And I never had the sense watching this movie that I was watching recycled characters. And I think it's different in high school now. It's stratified. It's always going to be stratified. But it's also more fluid. People representing multiple cliques, they flow between them. A lot of the standard labels that probably applied back in our day to sound like the old guys who want the kids off our lawn as they apply to gender, sexual orientation, even politics – don't really apply anymore. The world has changed and high school has changed and high school movies have changed too. I think we see that here. I think we see that teen lives in general are so much bigger than just my school, my town, my group of friends. And that's one of the things that actually worked in Lady Bird's favor. If you remember, it was a period piece, right? Set back in the early 90s. So you really understood how trapped Lady Bird could feel and how much she would long to go somewhere like New York where she perceives culture to be happening. Again, I think Booksmart really reflects a 2018-2019 perspective, which is great. And as much as I enjoyed that aspect of the film and appreciated Feldstein and Deaver as a pair, I didn't fully get on board with this film until the last third for a few reasons that we can definitely get into. But since we're talking about cliches, here's one small one that never worked for me in this film. It was the trope I'll call the damn it feels good to be a gangsta entrance. I thought it was hilarious and knocked up 13 to 14 years ago. But now it's so tired. Even Wes Anderson has been doing it long before that. And of course, he's doing it with classic rock instead of hip hop. But we get that hip hop music, the slow motion as these nerds walk into a library or wherever it might be, you know, flashing signs and acting a lot cooler (laughs) than they really are. Now, there's one time it really works, and it's in the opening scene because Olivia Wilde, as the director, does something really clever, which is as they're dancing and the music's playing, she then cuts to a wide shot and on the cut stops the music right, yeah. just to showcase how uncool they really are. There are a lot of nice touches like that in this film. Yeah, we're definitely going to spend some time, I think, on the formal touches because that's a distinction of this movie among the high school. I'm going to call it a high school movie genre. I, I think that's a smart observation about high school as much as we can tell. We are both parents of high schoolers, so we right. have some notion, but I think the fluidity of the high school experience is probably a more recent phenomenon. And as you were listing those titles of uh, girl-centric high school movies, Mean Girls, of course, one of my yes. favorites popped into my head. The distinction here, I would say, um, from those even, is the behind-the-camera talent at work also being almost exclusively female. And what I did get a sense from Booksmart is even as these cliches were being played out, it was the chance of fresh voices being able to explore those cliches and have fun with them. And it's familiar territory, but they're they're different shoes tromping through it. And I think that makes enough of a difference on the screen and what you actually see and feel on mm-hmm. the screen. So that Booksmart felt incredibly refreshing to me to watch. I think the other thing that it shares in common, and maybe is not a distinction among all high school movies, but is 
a distinction of the better ones. This is a film that loves these kids. And I don't yeah. just mean Molly and Amy. I mean every goofball that we meet, every student, no matter how stereotyped or over the top. I mean, these are really broad performances. I think it's separate from something like Lady Bird in that these aren't really kids for the most part you're going to meet in the real world. Whereas I okay. think we felt like all the kids in Lady Bird – we knew, like, we might go into our own kids' high school and find a variation on mm-hmm. that person. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make them a stereotype. It just makes them more lived in. These are, I don't want to say cartoons. They're close to caricatures. But because the film has such an affection for them, even in their flaws, especially in their foibles, when they're floundering about, um, that it brings a, a freshness to those stereotypes. I just thought this cast was great across the board. Yeah, they are. And there aren't any villains, really, which no. I've heard some people criticize the movie for. Like, this isn't realistic at all. There is a, you know, a bullying scene at the beginning, more of a gossiping scene, I would say, that brings a little bit of that. But overall, this goes back to the point of your fluidity. These kids all do operate together on some level in Mm -hmm. their social life, in their high school life. And so there's a level of awareness that they have. And it just, it made sense to me that while there may be some friction, some clicks and stuff like that, they also at the end of the day kind of like each other. And that's probably again, not Hmm. how it goes in a real high school, but it didn't bother me so much. It, It jived with this affection the movie had, which is a lot to do, I think, with Wilde's camera. Um, she One of the formal choices she makes is to employ a lot of close-ups, very intimate use of the camera. So they're, we're right next to these kids with their heightened emotions, which I think works really well and obviously highlights what are two great lead performances. I really, from the beginning, from that opening dance scene you mentioned, mm-hmm. I fell for Molly and Amy and their relationship yeah. together. Yes. Uh, were you on board right away with them? Yeah, I really was, though I think when this movie really gets going, and we'll get to this in a second, is when they finally separate from each other. I think hmm. that really is the strength of the film. It has nothing to do with their performances or how funny they are together because that's undoubtedly there. It's interesting, too, that you mentioned the close-ups because I noticed it, too, but I mostly noticed it whenever I felt like the tight close-ups were a little bit distracting. They were a little bit awkward, and maybe they were there by design to highlight their awkwardness, but they're already so awkward that I didn't need that kind of tilted really right up in their face angle that we got sometimes. You raised an interesting point, too, about the notion of the real world and how real this world may or may not be. That's something I struggle with a little bit watching this film. As I said, that first two-thirds kind of really getting into sync with it a little bit, despite all that we touch on that it gets right about modern life and about high school, in its rush Truly in its rush. This is a movie that moves at breakneck pace. Yeah, it's a little slapdash. Yeah, to get in all of its jokes. It may be, for me, sacrifice some authenticity. And there's a few different elements swirling together. I'll go from some of the more insignificant ones to the more significant. But I never really did get a sense of the location beyond Southern California. Yeah. It's just sort of they Southern California. Los Angeles at yeah, one moment. It's the valley, I think. But you never really lock into that. I do love how wild we've talked about a few of these moments already. I love how Wilde depicts Molly's reaction to this epiphany she has in the bathroom with some of her classmates, the world-shaking aftermath of this discovery that, guess what, all the people you've been looking down on because they screwed around and they're not going to be as successful as you are probably going to be as successful as you. I love that. Again, the way she actually portrays that visually and we get inside Molly's head. But I didn't really buy 
the exchange between the kids in the moment. The revelations themselves felt a little bit contrived to me. I think part of it actually goes back to something that I just read yesterday. Alison Wilmore wrote a great piece over at BuzzFeed that I will link to in our show notes where she touches on the blind spot she says the movie has regarding class, which isn't a problem because the movie ignores class and it shouldn't have. It's actually because the movie doesn't ignore it. It's a running theme throughout the movie. It just never chooses to engage with it in a meaningful way. And overall, I agree with Allison on that point. Yeah, I think I, I, think I saw that because she mentioned something about how, you know, how could these kids have gotten into those schools? Mm-hmm. And the implication, at least I right. took, is that probably they yeah. have influential parents. Connections. Um, connections. The movie doesn't explicitly mention that. It instead relies on, you know, we see Molly go home at one point and go into what looks like for an L.A. neighborhood, yeah. a lower rent neighborhood, yeah. apartment Apartments, building, right. which is different from her classmates. That's so true. I don't maybe the movie relies on little something like that to do too much work. Yes, I think that's the case. And Lisa Kudrow here and Will Forte show up as Amy's parents. And don't get me wrong. They absolutely managed to mine a few laughs out of their brief time on screen. But my feeling was that Amy's parents probably could have stayed conspicuously absent, just like Molly's parents do. That scene felt a little bit like filler to me. And that really is, for me, the larger issue is structurally all of the obstacles that are put in Molly and Amy's path on this odyssey to get to the party felt mostly just like that to me, obstacles. It doesn't mean that there aren't hilarious moments and some really inventive moments with the camera, but the detours that were thwarting them from their objective thwarted me a little bit too in, as I said, really getting in sync with this movie. But Booksmart really soars. I touched on this. Booksmart really soars when our heroines reach their destination and separately get to spread their wings. Molly has a line at the end of the film that I don't remember exactly, but it's something like, talking to her classmates, we saw you or you yeah, were in seen her, in, in this speech. Yeah. Right. And this gets back to the idea that you touched on in wild and the filmmakers here collectively loving these kids, the yeah. affection they have for them. It comes through in the fact that by the end of the movie, we feel like they have been collectively and individually seen. That's really the whole movie in that line, because up until the party, we viewed all of their classmates through Molly's and Amy's eyes, and it's only when they start to see them differently that not only do we start to, but we see Molly and Amy differently, too, because they actually show their other dimensions. We get Molly's fun, flirtatious side at the party that hasn't yeah, really come out. We get Amy's more daring and expressive side. I love that. And really, I was loving every minute of those interactions at the party and the culmination of the party only elevated it. I don't want to get into all the details or yeah, spoil we it. probably but, shouldn't. But I'll say that there's an underwater sequence to music that's its own wonderful little 60 to 90 second it's drama. It's really beautiful. It's, I mean, for, it's gorgeous. For, again, a very cliched moment. Like, yeah. we have seen this. Mm-hmm. We have seen an underwater epiphany for characters <laughs> how sure. many times? And yeah. this one still hits home because of the music that's used. There's a lot of music all over this soundtrack. Yes. I didn't mind that. I think that works for high school movies because that's how kids live. Yeah, that is a standout sequence. Let me um, disagree a little that, bit. Though, the steady cam shot. Let me just say then following her. In the the culmination is not only yeah, yeah. following her underwater, but then the steady cam going with Amy into the house and going face to face with Molly. And there is, I'll just say, a confrontation that includes another great choice to cut out dialogue. I think it maybe goes into slow motion a little bit too because we don't need to hear more of what's being said. It's absolutely clear what these girls are expressing in that moment. And those are the bold strokes of this movie. 
particularly at the end of the film in that last 30 minutes or so that I found really thrilling. Yeah, that confrontation all done in a single take um, that really does work well. What it allows us, I'm going to dance around spoilers too, but it allows us to see details in the background of the scene Mm -hmm. that are absolutely crucial that I don't want to give away. But the camera work and how to use the camera is, is all a part of that. I actually feel like, I know what you're saying, that Molly and Amy's view of their classmates changes by the end of the film. I think that's their journey, but I think Mm -hmm. the movie is ahead of them on that. Even as we're laughing, and here's where we should name some of the supporting characters and actors, because I think the ensemble is, for me, such a a joyous part of this movie. But that's where someone like Jared, who's this awkwardly ingratiating rich kid who tries to buy friends. I mean, yeah, when he first comes on the screen, played by Skylar Gisando, you want nothing to do with him. Yo, yo, what up, Miss Fine? I just want to drop off a last day present for my favorite teach. Jared, you are not my student. I've heard great things. And hey, everybody else got their graduation gifts, right? Come on. Jared Bear coming at you from all angles, right? Nobody asked for that. Big me, littler me, little baby Jared at the bottom. Baby Jared says, happy graduation, everybody. Yeah, no one's going to wear a shirt with your face on it, Jared. Like, not even ironically. Okay, well, agree to disagree. Jared, just go. I'm out of here. Wasn't even here. See you, Molly. But there's something about, again, the camera work where it makes space for him still. Yeah. And we're not, we get the sense that he's not up there just as a joke or an idiot. And as he gets more and more scenes, that creeps into our sensibility a little yeah. bit more. You I'll could agree say, with you real quick that the movie presents him as endearing. Yeah, or, endearing. Or That's a good word. Or slightly endearing to us way before Molly is willing yes. to allow for and that. And you know what it presents yes. him? It, it it presents him as understanding. This is where, you know, a mature perspective helps in making a movie about high schoolers. It presents him as in a phase that the movie knows is just a phase. Hmm. This is not going to be this kid his whole life. We're watching him maybe at his worst or his most awkward with with the knowledge that there's something else there as well and the hope that we'll get to see flickers of it. And the movie shows us flickers of that. You could say the same for George, played by Noah Galvin, the uptight drama club, like co-president, I think very much a stereotypical role, right? We've yeah. seen this. Usually this is the gay supporting character part in earlier high school movies, but I think he's given more time here mm-hmm. at that party. He gets a great it's moment his, yeah. singing karaoke his to you showcase. ought to know. <laughs> and I just love that. And another yeah. supporting character that stood out is Ryan, the crush, Amy's crush, played uh-huh. by Victoria Reska, just a goofy mop-topped skater girl. I could actually use more of her. Her first yeah. scene early on where they meet her outside of school and she's just skating by with abandon. I mean, that she's a character now who is not a stereotype, I think, at, a, at all. Like, you haven't really seen someone like this in how Well, they, they don't even know what to make of her. They don't know what to make of her, yeah. right. And so there's something very fresh in just how Reska carries herself in the film. So again, these are, these are all um, supporting characters mm-hmm. who I think the movie loves and we get to know more than we would in an average high school movie. And I, I also want to go back to just... I agree with you. That's Those are some really powerful moments when Molly and Amy split up. But this movie, for me, I was in from the opening because of their dynamic together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Feldstein and Deaver are so great in giving us a relationship that's clearly been formed over countless sleepovers. Yeah. They, they, they have a code language, and it's built on—this is what I love about them. They're comfortable enough with where they are in high school because they know better things await them. 
after high school, but they also know they're not at the top of the social hierarchy, right? They recognize this. And so they've built the foundation of their relationship is just an indefatigable sense of encouragement of each other. They're always going to just build each other up to right. comic degrees. So often they'll get into these compliments off. Yes. Where Love those they moments. just toss back and forth. Uh, I'm assuming a lot of it is improvised about how great each other are. And that carries through the whole movie. It makes their confrontation at the end matter all the more yeah. because we realize how different this is for how they really relate to each other. So I think this is absolutely, I know that Feldstein was so good in Lady Bird as the support, you know, supporting character, best friend part. Deaver is in a movie we both loved a lot, a high school movie this spectacular now. Um, but this and is she was really, in Detroit, which we didn't like as much. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Th- this is really a showcase for both of them, yeah. I think. No, I completely agree with you on that. So let me name um, just a couple more formal inventions that Wild and her team make that I think also sets this apart. It's this really bizarre stop motion sequence in which Molly and Amy imagine themselves sort of as Barbie dolls. Mm-hmm. And you could say, what in the world is that doing there? It's so bizarre. I think it also has a counter in Back at the Party, a dance number that is really kind of it's a fantasy number, yeah, and it takes totally. us out into another world as that stop motion sequence does. I liked both of those, even though they come kind of out of left field. They give you a sense of an imaginative filmmaker, someone who is, even though they're working in very familiar territory, going to find these different beats to hit. And one more, just one more at yeah. the very end. I don't think this is giving too much away, but the no, end credit sequence, can going. we talk about yeah, that? It's a, it's a lovely touch. Oh, man. It's just, it's so it's a callback to an early gag where Molly gets hit in the face with a water balloon on the last day of school as kids are all celebrating. So the way they end this movie, it goes back to what I was saying about loving each of these kids. The main supporting characters are are in close-up. As character, we get their character name. I think the actor's name as well. Mm -hmm. And in slow motion, they get hit with a water balloon on their face. And and it makes them... It's perfect because it makes them look silly and awkward, which the movie has honestly captured. But it's also... It feels feels almost like it's a a kind gesture somehow that the film is giving them. You know, and that's that's the balance that the whole movie makes. Yeah, the moment that started... I felt like it was the only way the movie could end, and yet I never in a million years would have imagined it sure. ending that way, but it was perfect. Booksmart is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. A female friendship of sorts is at the center of Massacre Theater, which we'll play next. Then it's the Thelma and Louise Memorial List, as we name our all-time favorite female friendships in the movies with the Film Spotting Top 5. Stay with us. This is a bad girl flex. When I come, I come to collect. This is a bad girl flex. Hang it up, disconnect. This is a bad girl flex. When we campaign, they re-elect. This is a bad girl flex. Run up, you might get wrecked. No one can test. Made a name architect. They never know what to expect. You accept what I reject. Coupon that boy. I might make him my toy. Send him on bug my rest. Tell his mama I'm the best. Somebody tell me say you didn't talk about me. It's no surprise that they check about we. Who ya shake one like she's so nice. Get that red out your eye for your come try me. Somebody tell me say you didn't talk about me. It's no surprise that they check about we. Who ya shake one like she's so nice. Get that red out your eye for your come try we. This is a bad girl flex. When I come, I pick up the check. This is a bad girl flex. Hang a talk, disconnect. This is a bad girl flex. When the campaign is reelected. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is, 
You do not talk about Fight Club. We are totally going to talk about Fight Club. Welcome back to Film Spotting. David Fincher's film turns 20 this year, and we will discuss it as part of our ongoing 9 from 99 series, looking back on what most people agree is one of the all-time great cinematic years. We have previously reviewed The Sixth Sense and The Matrix from 99. That leaves us with seven more films, Fight Club, one of those seven. You can learn more about that group of films we're going to reconsider by going to filmspotting.net slash, wait for it, nine from 99. I think we're going to talk a lot about Fight Club. I've got this at the top of my Fincher list. How about you? Are you a little more mixed on it? I would have to dig out my Fincher list. I'm not mixed on Fight Club. Okay. I'm a fan of Fight Club. Yeah. I have been wary for some reason of revisiting it. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I haven't seen it in a long time. So yeah, I haven't seen it since 99. Maybe I'll, well, I'll, I've seen it since then, but yeah, I might. maybe I'll back off a little bit of my love after hmm. giving it another look. Yeah, just because I love a number of other, or at least a handful of other Fincher films more, I don't think Fight Club is in the top two or three slots, but that may change after we take another look at it. So you definitely have a little bit of time here to do your homework if you want to follow along with our 9 from 99 review of Fight Club. Next week on the show, tying in with that, we will do our top five David Fincher scenes already getting a lot of good suggestions, not only in the email bag, but via social media. There's a fair number of GIFs or GIFs, depending which pronunciation you go with, on Twitter, fortunately, where people can actually share their favorite Fincher scenes with us. And we encourage you to do that via Twitter. I'm at Film Spotting. Josh is at Larson on Film. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or the old-fashioned way email, feedback at filmspotting.net. Before we'd settled on Fincher and Fight Club for next week's show, and look, I'm going to go on record and say, I think we're officially making a mistake now. I think we probably should have put this off, and we should have trusted our listeners, and we should trust other critics, Josh. And probably have gone with a new release. Why do you say that? Well, just because I'm now really intrigued by this film. What film were we talking about? Well, we were considering some of the titles opening wide this weekend and next. And there wasn't a clear winner at the time. I'd say now there probably is. So we put it to you in the form of a film spotting pull. The options we gave you. And Josh, do you need a trigger warning before I officially say the R word? Yeah, let me, t- let me take off the headphones. <laughs> the Elton John biopic, Rocket Man. Late Night with Emma Thompson and Mindy Kaling, though, I just saw today, they've pushed back the opening yeah, of that, saw that too. June 14th. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Ma with Octavia Spencer, and Dark Phoenix about X-Men's Jean Grey. The results so far show that this was a pretty good poll idea. Thank you, Sam. Rocket Man and Late Night, Neck and Neck, Ma and Godzilla battling for third, and Dark Phoenix. Well, Dark Phoenix is an option. Maybe we'll get to one or more of these films eventually. But, yeah, if Rocket Man wins, Josh, you have to watch it. It's only fair. I don't think so. I don't think that's how this <laughs> You're goes. You're going to resist? This, this isn't film spotting what would madness. It take, what would it take for you to go see the film? Forget, I don't have enough time. I got kid stuff. I'm just saying, what would it take for you to want to go see Rocket Man? To want to get, well, that's a good question. That's that's the way to frame it. I mean, the, the, 
you know, the early reviews that are positive somewhat help, though the good thing about being a critic is you don't really have to pay attention to other critics. True. <laughs> so I, I often take the liberty of not. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just, you know, we've gone over this. Biopics in general, I'm not a fan of. Music biopics are even worse. Music biopics where the person they're about is very, very intensely involved are usually dreadful. I mean, there are just way too many red flags. It's going to take a lot of positive reviews, like really glowing reviews uh-huh. to outweigh all those red flags. And what it always comes down to me, I mean, yet yeah, time is sort of an excuse, but it's also what of the dozens of movies coming out right now that I'm really interested in more, way more than Rocketman mm-hmm. could I be watching instead? Well, I can't argue with any of your red flags. I completely agree, even though I have way more of a soft spot generally for music biopics, going back to being a really young kid and loving not only Purple Rain, but loving the Buddy Holly story. The Buddy Holly story might still be one of my favorite movies ever. I love the movie that much. So I'm a little bit in the bag for these films, even as I can point to so many not just music biopics, but biopics in general of artists that don't really work for me anymore. So I'm really hesitant, but there have been enough glowing comments that I've seen. It makes me really curious to see it. And I think it's pretty much a slam dunk, regardless of how this poll finishes, that I'm going to see it this weekend. You know what I'm going to try. Re- you know what I'm really dreading, which isn't even fair to the film? I'm just dreading like the 48 minutes of next year's Oscar telecast that are going to be given to like standing ovations for Elton John. And then- <laughs> I, nothing against Elton John. I mean, he's, you know, he's kind of one of those rock icons who I'm aware of. You know, yeah. I have no objections well, you're Mr. to his, Can you feel the love I have no objections to his music. Too. That That is a classic. But I have, you know, I'm not the hugest fan in the world either. So I just don't need, and I don't think he needs the ovation. I think the guy's done just fine. I don't think Elton John needs this movie. We so don't cranky. all have to bow down and worship Elton John just because this movie is coming I, out. I don't think that's part of your ticket when you buy it. Oh, you're required. <laughs> well, I hope our film spotting listeners who are in the Los Angeles area feel that they're required to come hang out with you. You won't be as cranky. You'll be looser. You may have a beer in your hand. You'll buy beer for other listeners. Now, we're, we're never opposed to bribing. Now everyone's just going to want to talk about Rocket Man when oh, we're yeah. there. You're doomed. Oh, You're doomed. Gracious. 8 p.m. Sunday, June 23rd. We have a location. Firestone Walker Brewing Company in Marina Del Rey. We're going to put the Fancy. exact address. We'll have an RSVP form up. You can find all that at filmspotting.net slash events. So, yes. Please come join me. Debbie's going to be there. It's always more fun when Debbie is there. No <laughs> Rocket she's Man. she's more fun than you. No, it, it's true. It's quite, it's exceedingly true. No Rocket Man talk allowed. <laughs> and will you be there checking off the list of RSVPs? Is it formal attire or what's the, Adam, what's it just, the deal? It just helps with oh, I know. knowing how much space you might need in the place. Okay. Well, no. I mean, maybe I don't get as big a crowds when I do my B-dubs as you do. That's probably it. Okay. We also have over at filmspotting.net slash events, advanced screening and run of engagement passes. We've mentioned this at least, I think, the past couple of weeks, but The Dead Don't Die, the new film from Jim Jarmusch, is opening on June 14th. There's a screening here in Chicago, June 10th, and I think we still have some passes to give away if you want to enter. Again, filmspotting.net slash events. One note, one correction that we received that I wanted to share. This came to us, I think, the day our John Wick 3 review posted. And our review of John Wick 3 was one where we came right from the screening 
and came to the movie, and neither of us had read any reviews of the movie. I certainly hadn't been paying attention, I'm sure, same as you, Josh, to any interviews or any other supporting materials with the film. So a lot of people on the cast, really, almost everyone outside of Ian McShane and Keanu Reeves and, of course, Lawrence Fishburne, were pretty foreign to us. And we got this email from, this one always gets me when this listener writes in. I think he's even from Chicago. His name's Josh Larson. Yeah. Though it's the more standard O-N. O-N. He's Larson. A, he's a Swede. That's what that is. There you go. And I don't I don't want you to get cranky and no, <laughs> pick no, a fight I'm, with I'm Josh cool Larson. I'm cool with the Swedes. Okay, you're cool with the Swedes. Josh wrote us this. Just got done listening to the latest film spotting episode. Notice that Asia Kate Dillon was misgendered. They use they slash them slash their pronouns. I didn't realize their pronouns until listening to another podcast about John Wick 3, but thought I'd pass along the info for future discussions, re John Wick or Asia themselves. Yes, yeah, certainly news to us. We were not familiar with Asia's work and... Happy to be enlightened. Thank you, Josh, for the note. Someone else emailed. It might have been another Josh, Josh Youngerman, actually mentioned an email that the publicist had sent out in advance of the screening. We did not get that one. I think, yeah, as you said, this is a case of coming right back to the studio and cranking out a quick review. So we'll be aware of that in the future. It is time now for a little bit of bad acting by us. We call it Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. These children are going to the most glamorous of all summer camps, Camp Mohawk. There's a two-year waiting list and every child has to be voted in. On top of all that, it costs $1,000 a week to go to Camp Mohawk. The question is, is it worth $1,000 a week? It sure is. It's the best darn camp there is. Well, are you connected with Camp Mohawk? Well, I think so. I'm the program director, Jerry Aldini. Well, how do you justify $1,000 a week? Well, we have some special programs. Uh, We're doing Shakespeare in the Round again this year, of course. Uh, Our political roundtable, Henry Kissinger, will appear. Yasser Arafat is going to come out, spend a weekend with the kids, just rap with them. That's amazing. And the kids wanted animals, so this year each camper will stalk and kill his own bear in our private wildlife preserve. Are you sure the children can, uh, can hack that? We'll see. But the real excitement, of course... Is the one and only Bill Murray there as Tripper and Larry Solway's reporter in 1979's Meatballs, written by Len Blum, Dan Goldberg, Janice Allen, and Harold Ramis, and directed by Ivan Reitman. That massacre was part of our Keanu show a couple weeks back. We did a review of John Wick 3 and had our top five Keanu moments. Tie and episode, of course, are that Keanu Reeves, as a young boy, was in Meatballs. I'm making that up. No. I'm completely making that up. We did get a lot of, if I don't win, it just doesn't matter (laughs) in the mailbag, which I appreciated as someone who loved meatballs as a young boy. We heard from Steve Schaefer in West Hollywood, California. I finally know a massacre theater entry. That's Bill Murray in the classic 79 comedy Meatballs, which I seriously thought of voting as the best film of 79 in your latest film spotting poll. It was tied with the Muppet movie as my personal favorite film of that year when I was 12. I saw that summer camp classic at least three times in the theater. For those of us who were around at the time, the excerpt you massacred was almost too easy to spot since that scene was the one used almost exclusively for the promotion of the film, capturing per Perfectly as it did its best asset, Murray's wry delivery and twisted sense of humor as he posed as the spokesman for the rival Rich Kid Camp across the lake. The film also has the single most hilarious telling of a campfire story ever. Does it top Alien or Apocalypse Now as the best of 79? It does not my heart, Steve says. That's all that counts, Can't argue with the heart. Here's some non-1979 tie-ins. 
from Eric in Arkansas. The only connection I can immediately gather is Tripper is played by Bill Murray and Murray's The Dead Don't Die releases wide in June. Despite the mixed reviews so far, I'm holding out hope that it beats the prediction a completely lovely couple who sat in front of me several weeks back made when they saw the trailer. Well, if it's not rated yet, I'll rate it S for stupid. (laughs) Do you think they host a podcast? And if not... Can we get them to fill in for us? I would love They're it. certainly more clever. I, I think we give them a show and just call it S for Stupid. <laughs> now, I don't remember the dialogue surrounding our choice of meatballs for this episode, but surely we were thinking of 79 and Bill Murray and the Jarmusch film coming out. I think we I don't, were. I, I think... Maybe I, Sam just I, I think I found this one, and I yeah. think I was just thinking 79. <laughs> okay, well, I don't put that much work into this, <laughs> yes, Adam. Yes, I know. Rich Drees in Nanticoke. Pennsylvania, and I can't wait to hear how I got that wrong. With Memorial Day weekend looming, Meatball's earworm theme song, Are You Ready for the Summer, is appropriate. And Kevin Oaks in Princeton, New Jersey, wrote in with a little bit of criticism. The tie-in is to answer... How would meatballs sound with Keanu in the Bill Murray role? Sorry, Josh. Hey. Well, we have some special programs. We're doing Shakespeare in the Round again this year, of course. Our our political roundtable, Henry Kissinger, will appear. Were you channeling Keanu there or not? Not at all. Fine. Maybe not some of my best work. Corey Chapman in Toronto, Ontario, said episode 729 was by far your most Canadian episode to date. Let's start with Massacre Theater. Meatballs was shot in Hamilton, Ontario, only a couple of hours away from my city of Toronto where director Ivan Reitman grew up. Earlier in the episode, you revealed that the previous massacre scene was from 2000's X-Men, which was filmed almost entirely in Toronto. Another brief mention of Canadian content was from a listener comment that the film Logan had defeated Canadian superhero Ryan Reynolds, or I mean Deadpool, in the poll for a spot in next year's film Spotting Madness. And finally, that brings me to the episode's main topic, naturalized Canadian citizen Keanu Reeves, who, along with Reitman, grew up in Toronto. I appreciate the subliminal Canadian theme of your episode as Canadian content doesn't often get its fair praise. No, it doesn't. And I'm trying to remember... If we have actually done it or only talked about it, but I think we devoted an entire top five once to Canadian movies. Did you? I think. Now I'm going to have to search the archive. I wonder if I was a part of that. Yeah, I think you were. I think I was. Now, Adam, who tracks more diligently connections, people from Canada, anything that's all Canadian, or you, anything that's all Grinnell? (laughs) I'm going with Canada. Probably right. So... You can reach into the mailbag, despite the fact that it should have been pretty obvious. We gave away a camp name in the scene. We mentioned camp, for crying out loud. We didn't get that many entries, Josh, so maybe some people out there need to catch up with meatballs. They can do that after they see Stalker, Like Me, and so many other classic films from that year. We do have enough to name a winner, though. Reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Kimberly Wadsworth from Brooklyn. Congratulations, Kimberly. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt made in Canada. It's a scene, man. Memorize it. What? Look, man, undercover cops got to be Marlon Brando, right? To do this job, you got to be a great actor. You got to be naturalistic. You got to be naturalistic as hell. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. Maybe my greatest acting challenge that I will surely fail. Yet, 
when when I offered you this oh, part, yeah. you got a twinkle in your eye. Oh, I, I did. I can't wait to see what that twinkle I was might about. Have, I might have, under my breath, but kind of in public, practiced this earlier today. Oh. So now I've just set myself up for even greater failure. This is going to be good. Okay, I started off. You're going to give me the action. And action. I want to thank you for covering up for me. You're a real pal. Oh, it's nothing. I, uh... I just thought that us girls should stick together. If it wasn't for you, they would have kicked me off the train, and I'd be out in the middle of nowhere, sitting on my ukulele. Oh, it's freezing outside. I mean, when I think about you and your poor ukulele. If there's ever anything I can do for you. I can think of a million things. And scene. How did I do? You just dropped your voice. Twice as low when you came back there. Yeah, I did. Didn't um, I? You, I'll say, <laughs> and see. I, I think you were just going for a straight impression of this. Yeah, actor. I, I don't think you were playing the scene at all. How dare you, <laughs> sir? How oh, how dare you? I'm sorry, you were. I take it back. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, June 12th. I, it was a good impression. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries Don't and announced me. in a couple of weeks. You want to step back and get in your car again, please? Officer, I am so sorry about this. Would you let go of that? Now, I really, really apologize, but would you put your hands on the steering wheel? See, if you get on that radio, you're going to find out that we're wanted in two states and probably considered armed and dangerous, at least I am, and, and then our whole plan is just going to be all shot to hell. Luis, take his gun. Take his gun, Luis. Gina Davis in 1991's Thelma and Louise, we are calling this, and here the use of the word memorial is appropriate. Yeah, that's spoilers. <laughs> the Thelma and Louise that's what I thought. memorial list are top five female friendship movies. Now, I didn't do a thorough search of the film spotting pantheon, but we definitely heard from at least one listener via Twitter who suggested David Lynch's Mulholland Drive as a good female friendship movie. I think it qualifies. Yeah. And more, more than friendship going on there. That is a good point. And there are some degrees of that in the films. I'm sure we considered maybe that we threw out. But Mulholland Drive, certainly a candidate. It could have been anyway, but it's in the film spotting pantheon. Now, I did mention this at the top of the show that way back in 2007, March of 2007, Sam and I did our top five movies about friendship. And I noticed doing a quick search in our Gmail that we had a ton of emails in response to that list specifically. And I don't remember the exact details of this conversation, but at some point during that show or the next show, a listener wrote in and said, it's really hard to come up with a list of friendship movies that are just focused on women. They gave a challenge to us and to film mm-hmm. spotting listeners. How many movies could you come up with where there is a female friendship at the core of the movie and it doesn't involve a man? That was a key part hmm. of the challenge. And I'm going back here again to 2007, but I thought maybe a nice way to set up this conversation because you're not going to hear any of these movies mentioned on our list. We got an email. have no idea if he's still listening to the show or not. David Toland in Lumberton, Texas. He said about the challenge to come up with a list of 10 movies about women and friendship that don't center 
on their relationship with men. First, let me say that I think the avoidance of movies that reference romantic relationships or problems with men is a bit unfair. The very nature of a friendship is that it is a bond that sees you through rough times. Relationships are a key and central part of adult life and can often be very rough, so I fail to see how, quote, issues with men in a movie like Thelma and Louise makes that less of a movie about female friendship. But everyone loves a challenge, even if it's unfairly rigged. So here's a list. These were David's top 10 female friendship movies. Number 10, The Descent. Number 9, 9 to 5. I love The Descent. When I love 9 to 5, so we're off to a great start. (laughs) Bring It On at number 8. May at number 7. Terms of Endearment at 6. Steel Magnolias at 5. Beaches at 4. Little Women 3. Fried Green Tomatoes 2. And The Joy Luck Club in David's number one spot. Yeah, and I think the regret I have among that list, I haven't seen all of those, but the one that I think we might get some flack for not including, I don't believe you're including it, is Steel Magnolias. I was going to say Beaches, oh, actually. Yeah, but yeah they're probably neck I'd say and those neck, are probably at the top. People really have great affection for those and still blind spots. I, I had them on my homework list. I knocked out a couple other titles before forming this list, but just didn't get to those mm-hmm. before I saw some others. Well, let's hear... The movies you did include, Josh, what's your number five female friendship movie? This is one that I had seen before this last week or so. It's from 2014. It's called Girlhood, a French film from writer-director Celine Sciamma. She made, before Girlhood, she made Water Lilies and Tomboy. And as a matter of fact, she has a new film coming out later this year, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Justin Chang saw it at Cannes and said it was a Cannes 2019 standout. So there's one to look forward to because Girlhood is really strong. It centers on teenager Miriam, played by Karija Ture. Her life is... It's just a lot of drudgery. Her mother works a lot, uh, so she's sort of the de facto parent for her two younger sisters. She does have an older brother, but he he mostly ignores her. School itself feels like she's just being pushed through this factory. So without much to grasp onto, she falls in with a group of really rough classmates who spend most of their time fighting with other cliques, like really fighting, like throw down physical fights, uh, shoplifting, generally causing trouble. The movie has a really balanced view of all this. It understands the appeal to someone like Miriam, the way she gains this angry confidence that she didn't have before, but it also recognizes the dead end that she's headed toward with these girls. So an ambivalent sort of friendship at the heart of this movie. I think part of what keeps Girlhood from being a cautionary tale, which it easily could have been, is this remarkable sequence where the four girls use some of their ill-gotten money to rent a hotel room. And they just throw themselves a party for the night. Skiama gives – the whole movie really has a bold, uh, rich colors, bold nightclub lighting scheme to it. But here they're bathed in this deep blue glow while they're dancing and singing to Rihanna's diamonds. They're also wearing these cocktail dresses that they've stolen. But there's there's an irony in that they're all dressed up and they don't leave the room. They don't go anywhere. So it's they desperately want to be grownups, but they're still essentially playing dress up together here. And I – I think the scene just captures everything at play for this group of girlfriends, the the appeal of the camaraderie, the escape that they find together, especially in moments like this, also that shared anger that drives a lot of their behavior, and really just the dynamic of a bunch of kids on the cusp of adulthood who are clinging to each other as they try to figure it out. I think Booksmart could also be described that way, very different movie, but something it shares in common in observing that aspect of the teenage years and here in particular uh, how a group of girls who are friends are experiencing it so that's girlhood my number five number five for me i knew i wanted 
Greta Gerwig represented on this list. I think in particular with a recent trilogy of films, she is one of the best chroniclers of female friendship on screen. So, of course, I thought about Lady Bird and Beanie Feldstein from Booksmart being the best friend in that character. But I don't see Lady Bird as being fundamentally a movie about female friendship. It's really more about Lady Bird and her journey. That was a key distinction I made looking at my list. I thought, of course, about Frances Ha, the first collaboration between Gerwig as co-writer with her boyfriend, the director, Noah Baumbach. And I'll just confess, I'm probably underestimating, based on some of the responses I saw on social media, I'm underestimating how much the friendship between Francis and Mickey Sumner's Sophie in that movie is at the core of the story. I knew it was an important part, but kind of like Lady Bird, I really saw it more as Francis's story. That's probably a fault of mine. We got this tweet from Ah Hazard Bulbasaur on Twitter who said, Francis Ha, it's a movie that takes the structure from rom-coms and applies it to a platonic female friendship instead. It rules. Francis Ha is pretty great. But you know what movie I like better and really do think it is undoubtedly about female friendship? is Mistress America from 2015. This is the movie that stars Lola Kirk as a college freshman named Tracy. She's trying to acclimate to her first semester at Barnard College in New York, and she's kind of lonely. Her mother urges her to contact Brooke, who Gerwig plays. She's the daughter of the man Tracy's mother is engaged to marry. So I didn't want to go with any sisters on this list, and I think this qualifies because they're at best, soon-to-be stepsisters, and I don't think that even pans out. This relationship with Brooke comes to really dominate Tracy's life. Brooke becomes not only her her best friend, but also, in a way, her muse. Tracy wants to be a writer, and she submits a story to the Lit Magazine that's inspired by Brooke. I describe Brooke in our review of Mistress America as a late millennial Gatsby redefining herself day-to-day, moment-to-moment. And I think Gerwood brings the perfect amount of energy and crispness to her manner of speaking that you totally get how mesmerizing she is, why Tracy hangs on her every word and just wants to be in her orbit. My fiance, Dylan, was super sexy and so rich, but I wasn't going to marry him. Wait, you broke up with Dylan? I thought she stole him. And I never looked back. He cried so hard, like whiny. Where are you going? I was being real. But Mamie Claire then goes and marries him. They live in Greenwich, Connecticut, in some big, gross house. Do you know that place? Yeah, Greenwich Gross, Bill. Right? Living off of his riches and my t-shirt idea. I hate them. I actually pity them. They have no more dreams. I didn't approach this list necessarily thinking about the different types of friendships that might be reflected on screen, whether they're between women or men, but one that I think is universal. We all discover at some point in our lives, and it's usually in these formative years, early in high school or in college, someone who we look up to, someone who's not just a mentor, but basically someone we want to be. And we probably a little bit frighteningly start to pattern our lives after. And in an interview with IndieWire back when the movie came out, Greta Gerwig said this about the movie. We knew we wanted the essential relationship to be about women again, but we wanted it to be a different configuration. One's 18 and one's 30 and they're strangers. And they go into this kind of instant intimacy with Tracy idolizing Brooke. And inherent in idolizing someone is that you tear them down, at least in some ways. It's almost impossible to only idolize someone and then not see who they really are later on. And that can be disappointing, obviously. Absolutely. The closer you get to anyone, the greater chance for disappointment. But especially when one friend is on a pedestal, which actually Brooke kind of demands by her very nature that she's put on that pedestal. But what else can happen but that person eventually be knocked off? I really love the way 
Mistress America navigates that kind of disillusionment and the self-discovery without demanding that either Tracy or Brooke fundamentally change who they are. Well, and Gerwig, for all the reasons you stated, is fantastic in the movie. But what I really like about this is it is very much a duet that these two are working on. And the film gives them those scenes. Kirk is yeah. just as fantastic. I think we She's, both had equal or higher praise for her. Yeah, and possibly in, in, you know, an end-of-the-year supporting categories, probably we named her, if I remember right. But, um, yeah, I mean, in a sense, she is playing the straight woman. It's it's uh, There are more laughs in the Brook part. But, yeah, it's definitely a team effort in that film. That's what makes it so good and makes it appropriate for this list. My number four, well, Clueless. I had Amy Heckerling's loose Emma adaptation on my list of top five teen girl movies directed by women. That was show 613. So I just had to consider it here as well. And I couldn't exclude the friendship between Cher, Alicia Silverstone, and Dion, played by Stacey Dash. It's the classic, you were talking about different types of friendships. This is the classic, you know, 1A, 1B friendship structure with Cher being the alpha. But what I like about their dynamic is that it's more a matter of personality than social hierarchy going on here. Cher's just more of the type A personality. She's the perfectionist. And Dion is more laid back and, importantly, willing and able to call Cher out. So there's an egalitarianism at play in their dynamic. In fact, there's a nice little moment when they're trying to talk Brittany Murphy's tie into letting them give her a makeover where Dion shows that she knows Cher better than Cher knows herself. Hi, how old are you? I'll be 16 in May. My birthday is in April, and as someone older, can I please give you some advice? It is one thing to spark up a doobie and get laced at parties, but it is quite another to be fried all day. Do you see the distinction? Yeah. Pelotes generally hang on the grass, you know, all over there. Sometimes they come to class and say bonehead things, and we all laugh, of course, but no respectable girl actually dates them. Mm-mm. You don't want to start off on the wrong foot now, do you? I've got an idea. Let's do a makeover. <gasps> no. <laughs> no. Oh, come on, let us. Cher's main thrill in life is a makeover, okay? It gives her a sense of control in a world full of chaos. Please. So, yeah, even though I've gone to Clueless before, it's it's such a classic high school comedy with a great female friendship in it. I, I had to pick from it again. And not just Dion, but the Brittany Murphy character. I yeah, think you could you work could in as well. Yeah. yeah, she's a key part of that film. My number four is, I just noticed this for the first time, another 2015 movie. It is Sean Baker's Tangerine. And it's interesting you bring up the notion of egalitarianism in a friendship because I think that's a key part of this dynamic between Cindy and Alexandra. The actresses are Katana, Kiki Rodriguez, and Maya Taylor. There are three important aspects of friendship, I think, encapsulated in the relationship between Cindy and Alexandra. One is circumstances, this notion that only this one other person knows exactly what you're experiencing every day. And in this film, both are transgender sex workers working the streets of Hollywood. Forgiveness is a key part, because as much as they genuinely love each other, it doesn't mean they won't eventually in some way hurt each other and they'll have to overcome that. I think that's true of probably every friendship and this idea of being able as a friend to deliver really harsh truths. I've been keeping a secret about me and Chester. (laughs) Woo! I know what it is. You're breaking up with him. Thank God. Because, honey, for him to be cheating on you like that. Wait, 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 wait. what? Uh, Um, you, you didn't know? How the f*** would I know? Girl, 
Because everything that you've been hearing on the block about the girl that he's been with. Bro, you're the first girl I've seen on the block. Mm. You. What is she? Girl, she, she's some white fish. I don't know. Chester, she know me with real fish. Yeah, bitch, like a real fish. Girl, like vagina and everything. I've been gone for 28 days. And you mean to tell me that he's been out here cheating on me with fish? Yeah. Do I know her? So that scene may be a little bit inadvertently or not intentionally delivering a harsh truth, but nevertheless telling the full story, the whole action of Tangerine is Cindy confronting after that scene, the fish, as they call her and her man, Chester, who's played by James Ransone. This movie, of course, was a film spotting Golden Brick winner in 2015 and definitely the experiment, the successful experiment of the movie was shooting on iPhone 5S's, I believe. It reflects his boldness as a filmmaker, Sean Baker, but his real vision is the way he exposes us so empathetically to the lives of the marginalized. We certainly touched on this a lot in our discussion of his most recent film, The Florida Project, and he manages to show us empathy without sentimentalizing or softening some of the more ugly truths about these situations and sometimes the characters' choices. And... Yet there's also a real playfulness to his approach. There's lightness in humor found in all of these situations. And it's really a rare ability to balance all of those things. I think you see it balanced in the relationship between Cindy and Alexandra. And it all comes together at the end with a truly vulnerable gesture of caring and loyalty, which if you're capable of that type of gesture, what, what really is friendship beyond being able to express that type of caring and loyalty. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't detail it because I will not. It's uh, it's the one I wanted to reference, but not explicate either because it's such a lovely grace note expression of friendship that the movie ends on, and that's what a lot of Tangerine is about: is capturing those moments of mm-hmm. connection among them as friends, but even among some of the other supporting characters too. So, oh, Tangerine is so good. All right, my number three. When this top five topic went out on Twitter, we heard from Elijah Davidson, who said, be sure and check out the Urtext, Claudia Wiles' Girlfriends. It's on Criterion Channel. Completely new to me. I was unfamiliar with this 1978 film, unfamiliar with Weil, but I was able to fit it in, thanks to it being on the Criterion Channel. And Girlfriends really does register as a forerunner for, I guess you could call it the single women in the big city genre. As a matter of fact, while looking up some of her credits, would go on to direct episodes of Caroline in the City and HBO's Girls. I imagine partly that was because she was a formative influence on the people involved in those shows. Girlfriends is also an American counterpart to a 1977, so a year earlier French film that might come up later in that they share a lot of interesting connections, both involve photography as a recurring motif. They touch on topics like abortion and motherhood. Uh, We'll get to that film in a bit. As for Girlfriends, it's also, of course, about friendships. Melanie Mayron stars as Susan Weinblatt, an aspiring photographer in New York City who goes through a series of roommates over the course of the film. So she's the main character. But her first roommate and closest friend, Anne, played by Anita Skinner, She gets married near the start of the film, and much of it is about the ways that shifts their relationship. So again, it's a different dynamic than what we've really discussed so far in terms of female friendship. 
Marin is really, really funny. She's currently still working on Jane the Virgin. And like many of the friendships that I think we're going to talk about, her connection with Anne is really rooted in a blunt honesty. There's a nice early moment where Anne, who's an aspiring writer, is sharing something she wrote and Susan gives kind of a, an offhanded but pointed critique. Okay, go ahead. I have a war with my mother. She's on her side. It has become clear that I am on mine. I am pale beside her. Her hair is black, mine blonde. Her skin is red, mine off-white. She looks like a gypsy and she has a secret sword. This war could be the longest war in history, maybe longer than a hundred years. With that in mind, I am polite. I do not fight this war. My strategy is disengagement. I will colonize Venus. Did you ever fight with your mother? No. Did your parents ever argue? Never. Were you surprised when they got divorced? Not really. They never talked to each other either. You don't like it. This is a very scruffy production. But Weil manages some nice visual grace notes. There's a moment with painting a wall red. There's an indoor hammock that works as a visual metaphor for a relationship. And there are some surprises, some surprise faces in the male cast. Eli Wallach turns up as a rabbi. Bob Balaban as Anne's husband. And then a young and very handsome Christopher Guest as a potential love interest for Hmm. Susan. So that's just part of the fun of Girlfriends. Thanks to Elijah for putting it on my radar again from 1978. And as he said, it's on the Criterion channel if anyone's interested in giving it a look. Yeah, a completely new title for me as well. My number three female friendship movie. Well, come on. Regular listeners of the show knew that I was going to find a space for Pitch Perfect. And yes, I adore this film and will take any opportunity I have to talk about it. But really, it's about the female friendship dynamic that it offers. And it's one unique to my list. And it's friendship not between two individuals, like we've mostly been talking about, but a larger group of women. And I can't believe I'm going to talk about Pitch Perfect and not focus on one of the funniest moments in the movie, or even more likely one of the great performance moments in the film instead. I'm going to look at one of the more serious ones, but late in the movie, the Barden Bellas, this acapella group, are about to break up over their creative differences, and they try to solve it. It's a suggestion by Anna Kendrick's Becca. They try to solve it by sitting down and just being really honest with each other in a circle and admitting something personal they've never revealed before. That Amy? I'm an open book. I mean, for God's sake, you guys have got me fat, Amy. See, I guess I'm just not really living if I'm not being 100% honest. And my real name is Fat Patricia. Okay. I've never been one of those girls who had a lot of friends who were girls. And I do now. And that's pretty cool. So that's me. Someone else, please go. So Pitch Perfect really is a sports movie, except the competition, of course, is singing. But just like the Bad News Bears, you've got a bunch of misfits and loners who finally find some fellow kindred spirits, and they come together in 
pursuit of a common goal. And I think that's a real genuinely touching moment that we get from Becca as she admits the type of home she's found with this group and these other girls. If you're curious about whether or not it gets other details of the female experience right, well, I can't really necessarily comment on that credibly, but I was searching for a detail about this movie and I came across Linda Holmes's review of Pitch Perfect for NPR. And I love this. She writes, It's very unusual that I would notice anyone's fingernails in a movie, but I genuinely did in this case. And the reason I did is that these are a busy college girl's nails. She's got a screenshot she even took of the film of... <laughs> Anna Kendrick's hands at one point. She says, they tell a whole little tale about her. She keeps them short. She polishes them now and then, dark polish naturally. But after a while, she's doing other things. And sometimes she picks at them in class. And she doesn't really care that much. So now she has the broken down manicure of the actual preoccupied 18-year-old. I've had this nail polish. Many, if not most women, have had this nail polish. When? In college. Old enough to polish your nails not old enough to keep them up. <laughs> That's great. What a great insight. <laughs> Definitely never noticed it. And of course, now I'll never look at Pitch Perfect the same way. I still need to look at Pitch Perfect. I feel bad. No, no like all that jazz, you don't. I, hey, I liked all you that liked jazz. It. Yeah, I know. Quite a bit. I, I know. I think I would like Pitch Perfect okay. someday. All right. Well, Adam, ever since you had gentlemen prefer blondes on your top five movie duets list, that was on episode 700. I've been meaning to watch it. Sounded great. This was the perfect occasion. This is the Howard Hawks musical in which Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell play showgirls in pursuit of very specific men for very specific reasons. I don't think this would pass that test about which films don't involve the pursuit of men at all. No, probably not. It's kind of the opposite. Monroe is after money. Russell's after sex. But as Monroe's Lorelai explains at one point, it's not that they're opposed to love, but just that love would be even better with that stuff. So why not start there? Such fun. This movie is such fun. I've seen enough Marilyn Monroe to know that she's very funny. But after this, I'm always going to think of her as a comedian first. I think it's just such a send up of her own persona, but also deeply embodied enough to make it utterly convincing at the same time. Her dancing, not bad either. As for their friendship and why this makes the list, I love how competition doesn't even come into play no, it really between doesn't. them. I mean, it helps, of course, that they're both looking for, for different types. But still, instead, their relationship is defined by solidarity. It makes me think of Booksmart again and that main relationship. In the face of this society that is judging them solely on their looks, they band together. And rather than fight it, they, they're going to exploit it. Mr. Amos Jones and Valet, what are you doing? I'm checking the passenger list. Mr. Alfred Lohman and Valet. Mr. Eugene Martin and Valet. Why the sudden interest in Valets? When a man has and Valet after his name, he's definitely worthwhile. I'm simply trying to find a suitable gentleman escort for you. Well, don't bother. I've just provided myself with about 20. Dorothy, did you ever hear of a rich Paul Walter? Maybe not, but who cares? I like a man who can run faster than I can. I hate to think where you'll wind up. You're wasting all your time on unrefined persons without any money. Honey, did it ever occur to you that some people just don't care about money? Please, don't be silly. We're talking serious. 
You don't want to end up with a loveless marriage, do you? You know, there's also a tenderness in the way that Dorothy is protective of Lorelai, especially when her schemes get her into hot water. There's another nice moment where Lorelai is being chastised by someone for her behavior. Dorothy is there, so she's hearing this, and instinctively she defends Lorelai in front of this other person. But then as soon as they leave, she calls, she herself calls Lorelai out for her own good. You know, she's, she's looking out for her, but isn't going to do that in front of anybody else. It's a little bit there like Sharon, Dion and Clueless, you know, this mixture of solidarity and hard honesty going on. So gentlemen prefer blondes, my number two for this list. And really now one of my favorite musicals. I, I just love this a lot. Yeah. Bye Bye Baby was my choice right. for Great duet. Scene. And there are <laughs> so, so many others you could go with from, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. My number two female friendship movie is John Sayles' 1992 film Passion Fish. And the friendship dynamic here is a work relationship, more specifically an employer-employee situation. The movie stars Mary McDonnell as a soap opera actress who gets in a car accident. She's paralyzed. She's now relegated to a wheelchair and kind of in her anger, she goes to her home in Louisiana and just kind of lays around pitying herself and drinking a whole lot. And she has a series of nurses aides who come to help take care of her, none of whom can really handle the job, who can handle her, May Alice, until Alfre Woodard's Chantel shows up. And I mentioned with Tangerine the way Sean Baker imbues his characters with dignity. That's one of the ways that we empathize with them. That's really a key element to this relationship. You have May Alice and all of that anger and pity looking down on all of the nurses who come in to take care of her, maybe to make herself feel better. And the nurses, to an extent, all see May Alice as someone who should acquiesce to them. They're the ones who are in control. What makes this relationship work is Chantel's refusal to compromise herself while not expecting or ever asking May Alice to compromise her individuality Either despite who's writing the checks, and here's the egalitarian concept again, despite who's writing the checks and who is receiving them, they're equals in this relationship. Why do you have to start so early? It's past noon, Miss Colhane. Could you call me May Alice? What do you mean when your friends aren't here? I mean all the time. Whatever you want. I just really love in that scene where they come to an understanding about how they're going to refer to each other without it being a more dramatic production. They just understand what the other person is trying to communicate. I'd already had this movie on my list and was excited to talk about it before we got an email from Lisa N., longtime listener, Air, Massachusetts. She wrote and said, I hear you guys are looking for some suggestions of films that feature prime examples of female friendship. You could easily get several top five lists from female friendship subcategories, best sport-related friendship flicks, Bend It Like Beckham, Bring It On, Whip It, A League of Their Own, Hockey Night, Jane Austen adaptations, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, Bride and Prejudice, Emma, Clueless, and perhaps even Love and Friendship, raunchy R-rated ladies flicks, Bridesmaids, Lady Bird, Walking and Talking, Ghost World, and our newest 
contender Booksmart, and I could go on and on. And I agree with the great Ethan Hawke. The Girls Just Want to Have Fun is an underappreciated gem of a movie. And also firmly belongs in this discussion. That was a title he mentioned during the film Spotting Five here on the show. But for a film, Lisa says, that is in its essence only about female friendship, I can think of no better contender than John Sayles' Passion Fish. The second that Alfred Woodard Chantel enters this movie, we know that Mary McDonald's seemingly tough, offensive May Alice has finally met her match. We watch as their relationship organically evolves from one of purely professional necessity to a true, real need for each other's insight and companionship. And we absolutely love watching every step of that journey. I can't think of a more realistic depiction of true, real friendship. And like with most BFFFSs, best female friend flicks. We even have a delightful scene where Chantel dutifully psychs May Alice up for seeing her high school crush. It's nice to know that no matter how old one gets, we will still be reduced to a shy little school kid when it comes to crushes. And the crush in this film played wonderfully by a sales regular, David Strather. Well, and Lisa's right, too, about the wealth of options for this list. I don't know if we mentioned that at the top, but I mean, it was really hard. We'll it was probably hard. list a bunch when we get to our honorable mentions because there are multiple subgenres of this that we could have dug into for sure. All right, at number one, Passion Fish, one I haven't seen. There's one or two on my list you haven't seen. We've both seen and recently and seen together and really loved our number one films. It's One Sings, The Other Doesn't, from our Agnes Varda Marathon 2017. And I don't know about you, Adam, but it's not, you know, for me, it's not just a chance to pay tribute to the late Varda. This was a must for my list. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of all the films, even more so than Thelma and Louise, our memorial title, it, it's maybe the one that's devoted exclusively to a female friendship that's everything it's about, and that's the two women of the title. They meet, now I'm trying to remember correctly, I think they knew each other when they were little kids, right? In the same neighborhood, does that sound right? But then no. they encounter each other again later when... I think it's only actually at the beginning of the film they meet and they're both grown up. She's about 17. Yeah, Pauline is yeah. the younger one. She's yeah. a teenager for sure, played by Valerie Mares. And then Suzanne is about 22. Two, Therese Leotard plays her. She's yep. a mother of two at this point, kind of trapped in this despairing domestic life. And Pauline comes along and, you know, inspires her to chart her own path. They go on to do that partly together, but eventually they go their separate ways and keep in touch with postcards. And we hear the contents of those postcards in voiceover in the film. The word I used to describe one sings, the other doesn't, um, the characters, but also the way Varda films them was generous. And I think that's at the heart of this friendship as well. Pauline recognizes right away that Suzanne is deserving of something more and helps her find that. And then as their lives go on, they experience, you know, the deaths of loved ones, the growth of children, marriages, but their friendship always serves as this centering force mm -hmm. for them. And not just for Suzanne, that opening description of their relationship maybe makes it sound like Suzanne is the one who needs Pauline. But it's interesting that as Pauline goes on to live this wandering life and Suzanne settles into more stable routines, I think you could say, she somehow ironically provides a reliable place for Pauline to return to when mm -hmm. she wants to or needs to. It's, it's sort of like a switch of how Pauline broke Suzanne out of that domesticity. Then later, Suzanne provides something like that, not the despairing version, but something more warm and comforting for Pauline on occasion. I don't think one sings and the other doesn't get cited much in Varda's filmography. There's been a lot of reappraisals, of course, in the wake of her death. And it didn't come up all that often in the memorial pieces that I saw mm -hmm. or read, but I think I'd put it among her best and I'd really encourage people who are making 
their way through her work to make time for one sings the other doesn't yeah it's my number one as well and i think you went for it overall a little bit more than i did looking back at the marathon lineup i think it was six movies total i probably rated it the lowest of any of the movies in the marathon but i think that speaks more to the quality of the other films than one sings the other doesn't and you really said it nicely for me the reason why it had to be on this list the reason why i think it's really the definitive female friendship movie is because of that dynamic we see the fact that they split apart as friends often do no matter how intimate they may be with each other and how much they need each other life takes you in different directions we all have experienced that and yet as soon as you are ever back with them you encounter them again you fall right back into your old routines and i love that element we get in the film where they communicate with each other they separate and they're not friends for a while but then when they do get back together they stay in touch and it's through postcards mm-hmm. and it's through it's through letters and all the ways that friends who are separated by a distance have to stay in touch with each other i think you nailed it they kind of provide ballast they they help sort of balance things out for the other in their life there's someone they can always count on when they need them it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to call on them every moment of their lives or like molly and amy and book smart at least for this portion of their lives be together every single moment but that doesn't lessen in any way the the bond that they have it's really hard to imagine and of course you know this is how the movie's structured so it's built this way but still if you're imagining them as real people it's hard to imagine either one of them without the other yes. at least the women they are at the end of the film being anywhere near that sort of person if they had not had the other person in their life what a great point yeah, yeah so that's really true that's why it works for this list now did you know because i don't think we commented on this when we discussed the movie as part of the marathon, but Varda actually puts a couple of her own kids in the film. And we talked a lot about the end scene. I think you might have even yeah, had it as reunion moment. Yeah, as one of your moments, maybe during our awards. I think we called them the Cleos. But that image of a teenage daughter we meet at the very end of the film and we get a voiceover that really mm-hmm. is fundamentally about her. That's actually Varda's own huh. daughter, Rosalie, in that moment. So with Varda, you're always going to get that that crossover, that real life and fiction. One Sings, The Other Doesn't closes out our top five female friendship movies. We have managed to fit in a lot of honorable mentions, mainly through some listener emails. But yeah, there are even more. I'm curious which one's you left off. Yeah, such a rich topic. So let's get to some of these. The Women from 1939, a George Cukor film with Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell, Paulette Goddard, and Joan Fontaine. It is fantastic, but mostly they fight. So <laughs> I couldn't quite find a place for it on this list. Um, some some very catty friendships there. Uh, I also, boy, I really wanted to catch up with Walking and Talking, the only Nicole Holoff Center film I have never seen. Really? The one that I thought for sure would make your list. So fitting for this list from what I understand, but it's not streaming anywhere. And I just didn't have the time to get a hold of the DVD. So I will note Hall of Center's Friends with Money, which does involve a lot of female friendships there as well. Tea with the Dames. This is one of my favorite films from last year, the documentary of British legends Eileen Atkins, Judy Dench, Joan Plowright, and Maggie Smith sharing stories about their decades-long friendship seems tailor-made for this list. It is just delightful. Track that down. Another one from last year that could count Support the Girls. And yeah, Ghost World, one. going back further, yep. Enid and Rebecca mm-hmm. saw a lot of mentions of that. And I'll just give you two broad comedies here at the end. 
Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. Oh, yeah. And then I think we mentioned Bridesmaids at some point already. Yeah. You know, one that really didn't have a chance of cracking my top 10, but a recent film, I thought about Tully, an interesting friendship dynamic between women there. A couple others. These have been mentioned, though, for the most part, but I really did think about 9 to 5. I love that movie. I'll have to watch it someday. Yeah, such a soft spot for that film. Girls Trip, another recent movie. Of course, Bridesmaids. I did consider Ghost World as well. Love and Friendship was mentioned, another British costume piece, if you will. How about Yorgos Lanthimos, The Favorite? Yes, there's a little bit of a different dynamic in terms of a relationship that goes beyond just being platonic. Yeah. But that's that's an interesting triangle. Oh, Not man. just a love triangle, but an interesting friendship triangle. That relationship between Rachel Weisz and Olivia Colman is really fascinating. It, it is. And and yeah, there's a, a mentor sort of aspect to right. it. But yeah. 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 And yeah, the employee-employer <laughs> right. dynamic. Every friendship dynamic is kind of a captured. A lot going on. Yeah, in The Favorite. You know what one I also really wanted to find a spot for is the recent film from Swedish director Lucas Moodyson, We Are the Best, about a group of, I think, kind of junior high-age girls who start a punk band. It's really fantastic. And finally, I know there was a little bit of controversy on Twitter about this filmmaker after the premiere of his newest film at Cannes, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof, I think, does belong in any conversation of female friendships on screen. There are so many more we could talk about, but we're going to close out the show and, of course, encourage you to send your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. In the course of those lists, we mentioned a couple of other top fives that have been done in the past. You can find all of those in the show archives. You can also find reviews, interviews going back to 2005. That's all at filmspotting.net. Also at filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current film spotting poll. And if you haven't already, check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's hosted by Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. They explore how classic films inspire and inform their contemporary counterparts. In part one, they take a deep dive into a classic film, explore its legacy, and then in part two, they compare and contrast it with a modern successor. Case in point, this week, they've kicked off their Escapes from New York pairing so good. with 1979's The Warriors. And then, that's from director Walter Hill, of course, they'll follow it up with a look at John Wick Chapter 3. The next picture show drops every Tuesday at midnight. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want a Film Spotting t-shirt or any other Film Spotting merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. To connect with us on social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And you should really be subscribing to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, which arrives every Monday. Do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Yes, please reward the amazing work of our producer, Sam Van Hogren. We're just readers like Film Spotting listeners, but it's very good. Out in wide release this weekend, we've got Godzilla, King of the Monsters. We've got Ma, starring Octavia Spencer. That's and it. the R you word. Can, you can move on. <laughs> Rocket Man oh, is also out. Cranky Josh has no plans to see it, which means we have no plans to review it next week. We are instead going to do the third 9 from 99 review we have planned this year, looking back at the 20th anniversary of David Fincher's Fight Club. And somehow we're going to try to narrow down list to our top five David Fincher scenes. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. 
Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is from Lee K. Lee 47. More information is at Lee K. Lee 47.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.